0: to another edition of Hospitals in Focus. I'm your host, Chip Kahn. Before we begin, I will take a moment to say that I hope you enjoy this podcast and visit our other episodes. And I'd like to ask a favor. In the podcast world, feedback is very important and it's simple to do. So if you would take a second to rate and review Hospitals in Focus on your podcast app, I would greatly appreciate it and it helps us improve and continue to make great content for you. Now to our podcast. Joining us today to discuss the impact of COVID-19 on physicians and training is Dr. Allison Whalen, the Chief Medical Education Officer at the Association of American Medical Colleges, the AAMC. The COVID-19 pandemic is a disruptor, not just in the lives of millions of Americans or the operations of hospitals and their health systems, But for all the caregivers in those hospitals and health systems. This has particularly been true for some graduating medical students and the medical residents who train and provide so much of the physician care in hospitals across the country. From early graduations to changing training patterns, the graduate medical education of the next generation of physicians has been affected by this pandemic and may even be profoundly changed beyond the course of this medical crisis. So what does this imply for the hospital experience of these doctors as both practicing physicians, treating patients, and trainees? And what does it mean for those who oversee them as well as the institutions in which they practice and train? What does it mean for patients too? Allison is here to discuss these questions and more. Thanks for joining us, Allison.
1: Thanks, Chip. It's a pleasure to be here, and I really appreciate you taking the time talk about this really important part of the pandemic.
0: Before we start on our topic today, Allison, would you tell us a bit about your background, how you came to double AMC and what you do there?
1: So the AMC Association of American Medical Colleges is a member organization. It's 155 semi accredited medical schools in the U.S. and all 17 of the medical schools in Canada. Also have members of the major teaching hospitals, and the academic societies. So before I came to the AMC three and a half years ago, I am an internal medicine physician and I was at one of our member medical schools. And there I was the senior associate dean for education. And in that role, I oversaw all of medical student education, resident training, and the continuing education for physicians. I also cared for patients in both the inpatient and outpatient setting. So at the AMC as chief medical education officer, I see my job is really similar to what I used to do at a single medical school, but on a national level, working with and for all of our medical schools and all of our teaching hospitals to improve medical education across the continuum.
0: Allison, let's start with one of the unprecedented aspects of the crisis that has been reported as a byproduct of the COVID disruption. More than 30 medical schools have given the option of early graduation to at least some of their graduating medical students so that they may join the COVID-19 front lines. Besides the headlines on this, what has what it really meant in practice? What are the medical school's expectations for these early minted graduates? And what have they experienced? Did they really head to the front lines? And how will that mesh with the July 1 start date for many of these graduates for their medical residencies?
1: Yeah, so let's think about it from both these early graduates viewpoint and from the medical school viewpoint. So first, the medical schools had to make certain that any student they would offer early graduation to was really ready for graduation, meaning they had met all the program requirements and all the competencies for early graduation. So those schools that um, did um, offer that had to certify for each individual student. And then, of course, it was up to the students whether they were wanted to graduate early and also if they were able um, to take the opportunity to to become an employed physician. So most of the students who graduated early began working in a hospital that was affiliated with the school in which they had trained. A couple of things to remember, that when students graduate uh, with an MD, they are ready for supervised practice, not for independent practice. And they typically um, go into residency and then have a special license related to that. So in order for these students, these graduates now, to become working physicians, the state boards had to grant them special licenses. And I think something you'll hear throughout our conversation is how creative and flexible many different associations and governance and regulatory bodies have been to try to really help take care of what's needed to be done for the pandemic while also protecting the health of the public. So once the students were, the states allowed these graduates to get a special license, they worked within the hospital in which they had done their medical, medical school under the supervision of another physician. What they do depends very much on what's needed in the hospital. And don't imagine that they're all rushing into the ICU. They were really working at the level in which they were ready um, and competent to be doing work. So much work to be done in taking care of these incredibly sick patients. Gathering at the labs um, and the taking notes and taking the medical history from the patient, connecting with the family are all things that they can do for the patients that are in the hospital. And then, importantly, there are so many people who were concerned that they have COVID. They were having testing. Um, that many of these graduates uh, follow up um, in terms of uh, letting people know what their test results were and then following up to see if they were well or not, if they had not been admitted to the hospital. And then also they could be involved in the non-direct patient care that had been extended more um, involved in the telehealth work that had been going on. So a lot of different activities. So that's what most students did or most graduates did. They're no longer students, they're now employees of the hospital. And for those graduates who are now employees, um, it is important that both they and the hospital that's employing them um, work together so that they can start their residency for which they are contracted on july 1 on time we know the work they're doing now it's important but It's equally important for them to continue their training so they can become full-fledged independent members of the workforce it's also worth noting that a small number of the schools that graduated students early did put the students into residency directly after graduation the most notable of those is hsu so uh, oregon health sciences university And they were able to do this because they've had a longstanding practice, at least five or six years, where a portion of their students are offered early graduation. They truly work in a competency-based progression model. Since they already had that in place, had agreements in place for the residency programs, a portion of their students were able to enter directly into residency. But for most, both because of accreditation requirements for the program and limitations on individuals. Um, It did not make sense for them to go directly into their residencies, but to serve the hospital in which they had done their training was a way for them to be most effective, uh, most comfortable because they're familiar with the system, familiar with the processes, familiar with the hospital. And I think for a lot of the students, it was a way to really give back to the hospital and the people and the patient and the communities who had helped them become physicians in their training.
0: Allison, let's move on now to those who are already medical residents and central to the care in most hospitals with a teaching role are these medical residents. For those residents uh, whose specialties are directly relevant to COVID treatment, uh, what is it meant to be directly in the line of the pandemic's fire? And is it different than what they were already doing as medical residents?
1: Yeah, so let's think about that in in two parts. So one is, the loss of the mix of other patients, it's important, fully competent in whatever specialty they're doing. And then I think the other part is the impact of of actually caring for the COVID patients. So for the the first one, um, you know, these residents are physicians, but they're still in training. Um, And they, in their training programs, expect them to have, and they really need to see a broad array of patients. I'm an internal medicine resident. And of course, internal medicine uh, folks are on the front line. During my training and during their training, it was really important for me to see a large number of patients with diabetes, with heart failure, with acute myocardial infarction, heart attacks. And for those that are in a hospital that is 90% COVID, they are not um, seeing this diversity of um, types of patients and diagnoses. So there will be a need when the pandemic uh, has flattened um, and the surge has decreased, but this programs to really find a way for them to get that broad diversity of patients. So when they do graduate, do finish their residency on time, they are competent in the broad array of what it is that they're training in. I think the other part that has been written about um, in the press and I think can't be overemphasized is the work that it has taken um, for them that are in, on the front line and actually caring for COVID patients. Many of the hospitals in which there has been a surge, as I said, you know, 90% of the patients um, are COVID patients and they are very ill. These are young physicians without a lot of experience um, and uh, there are concerns as we not typically faced about their personal safety there's huge pressure because of the volume of patients and the acuity the sickness of these patients and as we all know um, there's been a high rate of of uh, death and so the the loss and experiencing that has been a tremendous pressure for the residents I think, you know, it's it's a lot of things. It also extends out to their broader world. They are worried if they've been in the hospital of bringing COVID home to their family. I've talked with young parents um, who are residents who, after they do two weeks in the inpatient service, then they spend two weeks in their basement or at a friend's house away from their spouse, away from their children, so that they don't pass it on to them. So I think that that's been a huge pressure. And I wanted to, yeah. So I think it's a combination of worry for their family, worry for themselves, um, and also worry um, about uh, their ability to, to, to work um, at that level and that hard for that long. And it really what's unprecedented it would be hard for even an experienced physician to be done.
0: You know, you talk about the psycho-emotional pressures these residents are under. What are the institutions doing uh, to help them cope? With the kinds of pressures you're describing,
1: yeah. Before let's just talk a little bit more about the pressures, because I think it's it's really important. And as we think about what those pressures are, it can help us understand what the the institutions are doing. If you think back, you know, as a young physician, you always have doubts. And but for them um, to being asked to be working under such pressure in new ways um, with rapidly evolving disease. When I was a resident, I was trying to learn the guidelines, what I, you know, what everyone else knew before me of what we were supposed to do. And what they're doing is and where they're creating the guidelines, how you can have confidence in that setting when even your attending physicians are saying, you know, we're working this out as we go along is extraordinarily hard. And I think the other part of it is um, the loss of patients. Um, For any physician, losing a patient is one of the hardest things that happens for us. It remains hard for all of us forever but with time and experience we develop we develop healing habits we learn how to care for ourselves and how to heal and reflect and go on but for these young physicians they haven't had the experience to develop those habits and because they're working so hard they haven't had the time to reflect and refresh even in the moment and really they're facing more some of them are facing more death and more loss and more sadness in a month of care that I probably faced in my entire residency program. So it's daunting. I think one important thing um, is that even before the pandemic, there was a recognition that there was significant concerns about clinician well-being. So a number of resources have been developed nationally and a lot of hospitals and medical schools were really developing offices related to wellness, chief wellness officers. And those individuals have really been called into play to help support the residents and so it's supporting them both in um, sorting through um, these emotions, sorting through the difficulties, sorting through the uncertainty. But what we've also learned is that these wellness officers now are thinking about not just the psychological support, but the day-to-day support, um, the idea of we need to provide food to these residents and actually the physicians that are in the hospital we need to provide a place for them to stay that is safe and close and local so that they can be away from their families if that's what they need to do. So again, it's taken a lot of creative work um, by people who are already doing some of this work, we're really pivoting and expanding their work um, in the COVID crisis and more needs to be done. I don't think any of us can understand how truly difficult this is and that there will be long uh, lasting impact on, on all the health professionals, not just the young residents, but everyone who's been involved with this and we need to continue to really work to understand it and to support everyone so we can have a healthy workforce going forward.
0: Uh, In those hotspot hospitals, what is generally happening with the medical residents whose residencies focus on areas not directly related to the medical treatment for those COVID patients? What are they doing?
1: Yeah, so um, I think one of the great things that the ACGME has done, the accrediting organization for the residency programs, is they developed um, the idea of 3 of the pandemic, and they allow residency programs um, to say you know, where they are in the stage. And so at stage three, um, which is really a pandemic emergency, they explicitly say that residents can um, be redeployed um, to do work if they have appropriate supervision and appropriate training from those things that they would typically be doing. Um, It's a challenge, um, but again, with um, appropriate supervision and under the guidance of the ACGME, which again has continued to stress the idea of resident safety, working with appropriate supervision um, and keeping their work hours so that they don't get even more overstressed, um, have been a good step forward. And then also for them, when the surge is over, we'll need to make sure they have the opportunities to get the broad training that they need to be fully capable and competent. Um, in the full range of what their specialty is.
0: You know, this pandemic has so many effects on hospitals uh, and those who work in hospitals. Uh, From the view, and we've been viewing this from the hotspot aspect, um, but what about those hospitals that haven't been hotspots? And frankly, we know because of orders by local and state officials, most of those hospitals are near empty. Some are almost shuttered. And many of them have a few to hundreds of residents. What's happening to those medical residents who are now in basically empty hospitals?
1: Yep, Uh, I mean, you just uh, exactly captured the problem there. And again, it was the right thing to do to flatten the curve, um, to really prevent um, such a surge that the hospitals are overwhelmed. But then for these residents, and again, I've talked with both residents and program directors, and, and they say, you know, roaming the empty halls. Um, And um, so for those residents, a couple of different things. They've also shut uh, many of the ambulatory clinics, but there has been a large pivot in nearly every specialty to doing a greater proportion of care through telehealth um, and distance care um, than what could possibly have been anticipated. So that has been a way that residents have been able to continue to stay active and continue to... Um, provide care and continue their education, recognizing again, um, that as hospitals reopen, there will need to be for the residents to get that that broad training as well. And it's frustrating to them. Um, they are there to work. They are there to take care of patients. Um, they recognize that they're doing the right thing, but it is hard um, to not being able to be given care. And we all recognize, I think you're, the people running hospitals, the people working in hospitals, is that if you put off elective surgery for too long, it becomes less elective and can even become urgent. So finding that right balance between slowly reopening and preventing a surge is a challenge that we're all facing.
0: Allison, from the midst of COVID, it is difficult to look into the future, but let's try. What effect do you see the crisis having on graduate medical education, and particularly those residents that are scheduled uh, to start this summer?
1: Yeah, my crystal ball kind of turned off a few months ago. Um, but, you know, so I think it will depend a little bit on the pandemic locally. But what we have seen is we've talked to medical educators. continuum, And so if you think about it, this is at every transition spot. Um, how are we going to enroll the next class of medical students? How are we going to help our um, final year medical students um, select a residency, um, interview for residencies and get into a residency? And those students who are graduating, how will they get into their residency? And one thing that I've been really impressed with is the willingness of schools and programs, and importantly, the associations involved in medical education to really work together. So there is uh, a whole group of the associations um, that will be coming out with really guidelines for thinking about what do you all need to pay attention to, to help a student who just graduated enter Residency in a timely fashion. We need to think about, you know, do they enter on time? Yes, they should. What do we do about if there needs to be quarantine? Um, what do we do about orientation? How do we help people think about moving across the country? And so, again, this idea of people sharing best practices um, and working together. Um, it will look different depending on what's going on um, in the the pandemic. Um, but there is a real commitment to continuing to train our workforce and continuing to help them move through the continuum.
0: Sort of in conclusion, uh, what's your perspective from AAMC? What role will AAMC play in working through the issues of COVID in terms of its effect on healthcare and physician training? And how do you see it over time affecting your con- the organization's concerns about physician workforce generally?
1: Yeah, those are great questions. And I think um, like everyone, we have both our short-term and our longer-term things. So short term, um, we have been um, actively creating guidelines um, or guiding statements for thinking about students direct, involved in direct patient contact. And then um, now thinking about, again, that those transitions into medical school um, and what to be doing in the fourth year for residency applications. We've also been um, doing some of what we do best, which is bringing people together. So when you are facing Big, tough problems that you've never faced before, the best solutions come from bringing great minds together so that across the, all of academic medicine, so the deans, the education deans, the student affairs deans, the people involved in residence, and even our students in residents, bringing them together um, on regular phone calls to share ideas, but also collecting resources. We've created a new educational repository for um, medical student education When we said that students shouldn't be involved in direct patient contact, well, how else can you have meaningful clinical learning activities? Our school stepped up. We brought them together. So now we've created this great resource, We've created another resource related to volunteer activities that students are doing. So again, data gathering and sharing best practices. Recognizing that telehealth um, has expanded hugely and is here to stay. Um, we had already started developing a set of telehealth competencies for medical students, residents, and faculty, and we've expanded that. And then I wanted to highlight one other aspect that we are currently doing, um, and it goes back to just a part of that whole wellness part of things, and that's that recognizing and AMC has been working for a couple of years in really thinking about the role of the arts and humanities in medicine, recognize that it's important, but particularly in times of, of crisis and distress. We have accelerated that and, and are going to be launching a couple of projects specifically related to that, um, which is specifically collecting stories and poems from healthcare professionals related to COVID-19. It's an association with the National Endowment for the Arts. And so the first is really a call for creative works, poetry, and 55-word stories, with or without images from students, residents, and faculty. And these will be curated, shared broadly both online and probably in a future time when we all get together and can look at things together. And then the second opportunity, again, in conjunction with the National Endowment for the Arts is something called the Listening Poet. Again, it's a strategy they would used before that we're adopting for health professionals in related to COVID, where a trained listening poet listens to healthcare provider, takes their words and turns it into a poem. And what I have found as I've read social media, and actually um, just notes and and information and sharing from colleagues uh, among ourselves and importantly for our learners, that oftentimes the arts narrative and poetry can capture our feelings in ways that nothing else can. And so I'm actually really proud of this work that AMC is gonna be doing with the NEA and we're looking for other opportunities with other organizations to expand that as well. So that's those are all short-term things that we're doing. In long term, as you said at the beginning, the pandemic has changed the way we think about medicine um, and probably how we do medicine forever, partially because of the pandemic and we have to adjust, but also because sometimes crisis causes innovations that are unexpected but worth um, continuing and expanding. So AMC with other associations is really committed to thinking about and understanding what have we learned that we need to keep and expand and do better with, even if the pandemic doesn't force us to do that. And again, because we serve students, residents, educators, student affairs folks, teaching hospitals, and medical schools, we think we're in a great position to bring people together a little ways down the line and really begin thinking about that. AMC has a medical school application service. Um, It opened this week, May 4th. And in our first three days, we had a 50% increase of initiated medical school application over the same time period last year. So really extraordinarily high number of people initiating their applications. Don't know that that means we're going to have that many more, you know, when the cycle is done. And some people have said, you know, this may just because people are home and they have time on their hands. I think it's something different because, you know, what I see on social media is that our young people are really full of passion, desire to help desire to change the world and that the news from the front lines of the pandemic has really in, reinforced the idea that a career in medicine or any of the health professions um, really gives you an incredible opportunity. And, you know, the world is looking for heroes and people can see that physicians and nurses can be heroes. And although the heroism that we're seeing these days is really epic and front page, I think we all know anyone who's associated with hospital work that there are quiet moments of courage and heroism in the everyday life of every physician. And I, I think this is a real opportunity for us to help these people who are paying attention to medicine to really you know, potentially understand that. So I actually think there's great hope and great future for medicine, the medical profession, the health professions. And there are challenges. The health of our current learners, residents, professions we need to care for. We need to care for the health of our hospitals as well. I think we have great opportunities.
0: Well, it, it's gratifying to hear hear that, Allison. And frankly, this has been a great conversation. I think it, it the last part, particularly, hopefully, will be enlightening to our audience. And uh, I'm confident that the whole conversation will be meaningful to the audience. It certainly was for me. We really enjoyed having you, and just deeply appreciate. You're taking time to join us today.
1: Thank you, Chip. And I really appreciate you taking the time to, to really think about, again, our, our learners and our future physician workforce. It's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thanks.
0: Join us next time as we speak with experienced leaders on new ideas about healthcare, delivery, and financing. Please listen, rate, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you haven't already, you can follow the Federation on social media at FAH Hospitals, and me at Chip Kahn. This was Hospitals in Focus. I'm Chip Kahn. Thanks again for listening.